Welcome to the Lights, Camera, Action, Entertainment Reviews Podcast. The world is changed. Much that once was is lost. For none now live who remember it. History became legend. Legend became myth. And some things that should not have been forgotten were lost. Our Lord of the Rings retrospective comes to an end. It has now been found. Is it secret? Is it safe? You have my sword. And you have my bow. And my axe. Carry the face of his all little one. We're coming too! Sephiroth's not going anywhere without me. You will face evil. And you will defeat it. On this episode, we will be discussing and reviewing The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Are you frightened? Yes. Not nearly frightened enough. This episode will contain spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. There will be no dawn for men. And now, here are your hosts for this episode. Mike Winkler, Alistair Engelhardt, and Daniel English. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Lights, Camera, Action, Entertainment Reviews podcast. Lord of the Rings retrospective, the final part, ladies and gents. Return of the King. And I'm back here with Alistair Englehart and Dan English as we discuss this final chapter in the beloved Lord of the Rings trilogy. How are you all hey. doing? Good. How are you doing, Mike? Doing good. Excellent. Just got done watching the four-hour uh, Return of the King. It was a uh, mm. good part of my day. Yeah. yeah. That's, uh, that's commitment. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. So, so I got to start off by saying... Return of the King is way better this time around for me than it has been in the past. It was for for me too. I'm not saying that it unseats Fellowship just because Fellowship is so underappreciated. So that's more of a political thing for me. But Mm -hmm. I enjoyed it so much. I I really did. What changed this time around? (sighs) I guess it's just been so long since I watched it Mm. that I found myself not having remembered certain things. Mm -hmm. Um, I found myself really loving the balance as I did in fellowship between levity and gravity. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought ending at the victory of Helm's Deep was a really optimistic place to start. And I think I had this false memory of the trilogy of just increasingly bleak until the end. Mm. Um, I don't know. Maybe my mental state last time I watched it was like less optimistic, but this time around, it just was a much more optimistic film. And Mm. I, and certain things jumped out at me and, and initiated certain thoughts that were, it was just fun. It was a good watch. Had you seen yep. the, ex- had you seen the extended uh, version before or was this the first time watching the extended scene? 
Yeah, so pretty much every time I've watched these, except for in the theater, have been extended because we got my dad mm. the um, the extended movies as they came out when we were younger. So we've I've just yeah. always had the extended versions of the movies. Yeah, yeah. I it's it's interesting. I there's a few scenes in the extended version that I think do actually um, create a much more optimistic view um the three that i'm thinking of are one when there's the scene with um frodo and and sam that directly follows gandalf's explanation of the decline of gondor where they see the the halo of flowers around the fallen mm. gondorian king statue um and it's kind of like this brief um moment of hope and then until it becomes to, overcast. Right, till it becomes overcast. And um, the other scene um, that I think fo follows it later in the film is when Faramir and Denethor are heading towards the pyre. When De I guess when Denethor is taking his son Faramir towards the pyre, um, you don't get that that flower in the theatrical edition that they show um, oh, on, the, on, the, on the white tree of Gondor. Mm -hmm. um, oh. But that's another scene where they kind of... I think cast a bit more of a hopeful, um, a bit more foreshadowing that it, it's all gonna that that it's it's gonna resolve itself, um, despite okay. how dismal the, the um, current state of things are. And then my my favorite um, is actually when Sam and Frodo are in Mordor, and there's that one night where they're lying on the ground, tired, and suddenly Sam sees this star shining, and he tries mm -hmm. to cheer up Frodo, and he's like, "There yeah. is light." And beauty up there that no shadow can touch. I um, like that line. Yeah, I that. yeah. So I, 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 I go. Yeah, I, I feel like those three. I'm, I'm sure there's more, and you're, you're probably thinking of your own scene, Stan. But, um, but I think those are three, three scenes that jump to mind for me at, uh, with the extended edition that I think do hit the the theme of hope um, a yeah. lot more strongly um, than it was even in the theatrical theatrical edition. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, yeah, for, yeah. For, for, for myself personally you know um i don't want to get into how i rank it within the trilogy until the end but uh i think one of the things i really really enjoyed about this especially was um you know uh the beginning i liked seeing um smeagol's opening to when he killed his friend is that his friend or his brother who is that is, is that just deagle. Friend? yeah deagle <laughs> um i don't know i think it's just a friend i don't think it's a family member it's a friend you know, Despite the similarity that, in name. <laughs> yeah. That too was present, but it was it was extended with extended mm -hmm. material. Oh, really? I remember. Yeah, it, I think I'm trying to, it's hard for me to remember. I should look this stuff up, but it's hard for me to remember how much of it was extended. But mm -hmm. one of my one of my anticipations for the extended edition in Return of the King was getting more of Smeagol's backstory. Mm -hmm. Which I thought was very important too, because um, some of my favorite scenes are actually the uh, the scenes with Frodo, Sam, and and, and Smeagol, because um, Smeagol trying to get you know Frodo to turn on Sam was uh, I, I think I almost had a little problem with the fact that Frodo was so easily persuaded by Gollum to to tell Sam to go home. I thought you know you know Sam so well. And you're going to tell him to go home when you've only known Gollum for this brief amount of time that he allowed him to kind of 
consume his thoughts and push Sam to the side. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, you know why it's a problem, Mike, is because it didn't happen in the book because that's not who Frodo is. Now, how did it go in the book? Uh, he he yeah. never cast Sam away. Um, and, and I think that that gets back to um, what we talked about a little bit with the two towers of the, the introductions of, of conflict or moral conflict or mm-hmm. just, um, I think, blemishes to certain characters that um, uh, for whatever reason, they, I, I think the scriptwriter seemed to think would appeal to the audience more. Um, so I like that part. Yeah, I, I remember you mentioning you liked that part. And the reason I like that part is because it's probably, it's just such an emotional time. And I, I don't want to be sensationalist, but that's when Sam's devotion comes to a head. That's mm. when that's true. he that's could really true. go home, he could retire, he could yeah. die, but he chooses to... Um, follow them and try to keep after them despite Mm -hmm. having Mm -hmm. been cast out and i also think that again this is as an as i haven't read two or three so not a book reader here the the bonding that happens between frodo and smeagol because they both bear the burden of the ring Mm -hmm. is something that i like and i find very believable um Because Frodo is not, I mean, Frodo is about to get to Mordor by the end of this and choose not to get rid of the ring. And so Frodo's path is from the two fractured elements of Smeagol's personality. He starts off quite endurant and Mm self-sacrificial and relatively, you know, not really affected by the ring's temptation, offering it to people unwittingly, not understanding that, mm-hmm. you know, the power it can hold over people to the mm-hmm. point where by the end, you know, in, in fellowship, he's offering it to Gandalf. He's offering it to Galadriel. <laughs> he's yeah. taking it just so people don't argue over it. And mm-hmm. now Sam says he could carry it for a moment. And that seed that Gollum had planted into his head, just he, yeah, you know, he's he's a different person. That, I like that. That's, that's and a, so yeah, yeah, that's good. <laughs> I don't I don't love tarnishing characters who otherwise have as part of their core attributes um, to be noble, like Faramir. I, it's actually kind of disappointing to me that Faramir was such a um, like mean the, character, yeah. and that the Knights of Gondor weren't actually representatives of humanity's last hope they were just a Mm. bunch of thugs (laughs) um but i do think it's consistent with frodo's arc to have him push sam away like that and sean Mm. Astin just does such a good job in that scene Mm -hmm. his performance in this movie definitely blows the other two out of the water it's just um his performance is so commanding and just the the tears in his eyes in those scenes just feel so real his friendship with frodo it just it feels so meaningful. It's, it's like they're these close brothers that have been bonded since they were born. It almost feels yeah. like that, that they just have this such a close bond with each other. Yeah. And that's why it's so sad at the end. Yeah. <laughs> that's why it's so sad at the end when, when Frodo goes away. Just it's like yeah. it's like Sam really is losing a brother. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that is uh I've I definitely the first time I watched it, 
um, I wasn't, I, I don't remember why I had forgotten, but I wasn't expecting Frodo to leave. Um, and uh, it, it was a very sad scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the, the emotion of the ending wasn't lost to me there. That's my yeah. question to you guys, too. Um, I kind of, I, I didn't really remember the ending from the first time I saw it. Mm-hmm. And it, at first, I perceived the ending is after um, Sam and, and Frodo are on, on the volcano mm-hmm. and they pass out thinking they're going to die there. And then the mm-hmm. screen fades to black and then we come back with the eagles picking them up. It almost felt like, especially with the color palette in the movie for how bright it was, it almost made it feel like they died in that moment and everything else was a dream in their head after the fact. I know it wasn't, mm. but but it almost appeared that way with, with the color palette that Peter Jackson was using there. That's the filmmaker huh. in me coming out there, just sure. seeing it that way. Like how, how it fades to black or like complete black. Yeah, like the movie could have ended right there. Yeah, it does. I remember it does seem like an ending, if, especially if you're watching it for the first time. It's like, yeah. wow. Well, <laughs> like, that's, wow, that's ending number one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You were right too, by the way, Dan. I picked up on that. I was watching how many times it seemed like the movie could just have just ended, yep. mm-hmm. like three or four times at least. <laughs> I mean, I get so absorbed in the Battle of Minas Tirith <laughs> when yeah. that one ends. Theoden dies. Merry and Pippin are reunited. I'm like, okay, this is good. <laughs> like, this is over, right? And then. Right. Gandalf mentions how many orcs are between Sam and, and Frodo and Mordor, that, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. This whole this whole ring. There thing are long periods on. of time in this movie where we don't see Frodo and Sam at all, especially yeah. in the extended. I couldn't believe, you know, there were a lot of characters too that I noticed that didn't really didn't have as much screen time as the previous movies, like Legolas barely did. Mm-hmm. Um trying to think who else didn't um but yeah frodo and sam didn't have a lot of screen time to the last act of the movie i mean they were pretty much absent the first i don't know hour an hour and a half maybe just a few scenes here and there mm-hmm. yeah. but uh i was shocked by that i didn't realize that the spacing of characters in this film was so wide i i think part of it too is they just added so much mm-hmm because what'd you say, Al? Fifty minutes of, of extra footage. That's a lot. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, if you're if you're adding extra scenes for the sake of getting in extra content, um, and I don't necessarily have a good eye for this, but I guarantee that's going to affect pacing and sure. maybe even portioning in terms mm-hmm. of story. Um, so one of the things that stuck out to me this time around that I guess has been present in the whole trilogy, but really becomes at the front of my mind is Gandalf speaking authoritatively. And, yeah, very much and so. He, yeah, he makes these assertions and declarations and they just come to pass. And I think the most blatant one is when he tells Saruman Your that his staff, staff is, is broken. broken. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it breaks. And so I'm wondering, that could yeah. be just a really cool comeback, or mm-hmm. Gandalf's magic could be that his his proclamations have a creative power. Yeah, and he sure. does it again. Yeah. I mean, the first time we see him do it, I think this is the first time, is when he tells the Balrog that he shall not pass, he cannot pass. Mm-hmm. And what happens, the bridge collapses, he doesn't pass. Mm-hmm. Um, right. 
but then I think when he's exercising Saruman out of Theoden, maybe. Yes. Um, but then again, he does it when he's telling Faramir that his father will re- realize he loves him before the end. And that one isn't even like a spell. It's just a, a prophecy. And it yeah. comes true, yeah. right? Because right before he runs off the tip of the tower, the yeah. garden, he's like, yo, yeah. my boy, Faramir, or whatever. And so mm. I was just really intrigued at Gandalf's wisdom and power in this movie mm-hmm. um and of course he he comforts uh he comforts oh my gosh i mixed Pippin. 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 yeah Pippin. yeah Pippin. peregrine Pippin. Tent, yeah Pippin. What, white shores <laughs> you know it's yeah. funny you bring up Pippin because i really do feel like he steals this movie mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. yeah can you tell us about that mike <laughs> Well, I think every scene that Pippin is in, um, I just think some of the best scenes in the movie are from Pippin and, and his relationship with Mary too. Um, when when Pippin has to leave after he touches, what do, what do they call that 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 big glowing the ball? stone. Okay, when he touches the that palantir, the mm-hmm. yeah, yep, the palantir. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, when he touches that, and then Gandalf has to take him away. Um, that was really the first time that I really, I really got the sense that, that those two were just the greatest of friends. And, yeah. and it really is kind of interesting in this film how, you know, we have two sets of friendships that are so strong, you know, between, mm. you know, Sam and Frodo and, and, and uh, Mary and Pippin. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Pippin just between him bowing to, to, um, uh, yeah when he's bowing saying you know my services are are yours let me pay repay the debt to your son's debt and uh and then him uh being afraid to fight and talking to gandalf and saying you know am i gonna have to fight well yes you're in you're in his service now so you're gonna do whatever they ask of you Mm -hmm. um and then and then going to marry and seeing how committed he is i want to fight and going to the king and saying i want to be i want to fight will you let me fight yeah and uh and then when he shut down saying, you know, you need to stay here. I can't let you be somebody else's responsibility. Hmm. And uh, Erwin taking him on her horse and just and going. It's just little scenes like that. But um, but Pippin hmm. does steal the movie. And I love the song he sings, too. So yeah. It's, yeah. Like that. it's a win-win. Yeah, I really love what, what um, Tolkien does with parent, Pippin and Mary. I think, um, I think they certainly Sam changes a lot too, but I, I feel like Sam changes in the sense that he becomes more courageous mm-hmm. um, and confident. Whereas Mary and Pippin to me really, it's kind of a coming of age kind of transition yeah. for them where they're right. just very, very immature when we first meet them. I mean, they're, they're stealing fireworks. <laughs> um, and then, and then by, vegetables. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And then vegetables. And, and by the end, there's just a, a definitely a distinct nobility about them um and um and actually in the books um one of the one of the other changes um Soriman and grima don't um don't die uh quite so early in the book uh mm-hmm. actually they they out, outlive sauron and end up um taking over the shire um mm-hmm. and so oh, when, no when they, yeah when they return from mordor they find all their friends enslaved 
basically that's another hour and a half i know and yeah. that's why that's why, i think that's why they had to kind of <laughs> close it out early <laughs> um but pippin and mary were were kind of uh, two of the um two of the main um battle hardened yeah, soldiers yeah, mm -hmm. veterans right. kind of led, led the charge against uh Sauron and grima um at that point so yeah i, I really Man, I, I we have you, touched Mike. so many things that i wanted to talk about the first <laughs> is kind of what when you're talking about gandalf telling pippin you know you've got to you've got to do this you you swore yourself to him it's that continued theme that i love so much in Lord of the Rings of the idea of being duty bound, the idea that what you say matters um, <clears throat> and what you say you'll do is a bond in and of itself. Very much and so, so and, and people just acknowledge that. And so I found that to be a continued theme that I really enjoyed of just characters, you know, I mean, the whole the whole means by which we get the traitor army, the skeleton army, um, mm -hmm. to come back and fight is the fact that they're duty bound, and that as a sealed or's heir, he has the ability to to simply consider their debt honored. I mean, he has the the choice at the end of the Battle of Minas Tirith to release them or not. And he, you know, he chooses to release them. And so I just, I love that theme. And every time yeah. it pops up, I enjoy that in this universe, what you say matters and there's, there's power behind promise in a mm -hmm. sense. I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. I like um, how, um, I like how Gimli tells Aragon too, like, you know, we can use them. They're a good asset to have. You mm -hmm. shouldn't relieve them of their debt. <laughs> Aragon doesn't even consider it. He just like, shut up. Shut up, Stuart. Just yeah. shut up. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a great point, Dan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then the second thing was, <clears throat> um, it's kind of like a little behind-the-scenes fan theory. I don't think it's in the book, but I, I found it really enjoyable, is that in the scene where Pippin is singing to Denethor, mm -hmm. and Denethor is eating this feast, People are saying that it's an Easter egg if you were to pretend that Middle-earth is kind of like uh, actual Earth. Um, mm -hmm. I think it was, I should look the date up again just to make sure. Yeah, in the 1500s, apparently tomatoes came as a foreign crop into Europe. Um, and they started, tomato, the acidity of tomatoes would leach lead from pewter plates and cups into the food that uh, Europeans were consuming. So there was the spike of lead poisoning and sickness. And so when Denethor is eating at the table, there's the one shot, and I mean, you see him bite into that great yeah. tomato, oh but there's God. the one shot where he's got a pewter so plate disgusting. just full of tomatoes. And so the fan yeah. theory is that he's becoming so insane in part because he's just eating lead all day. Wow. Um, yeah, interesting. Makes sense. It actually makes a lot of sense. I kind of, I kind of got that feeling from the, you know, <laughs> well, I mean, cause he clearly is driven insane. I, I like the more traditional perspective that he's just, you know, power hungry. He's steward of the throne, but he doesn't intend to ever see that power back. And he's just seeing mm -hmm. um, mm. his line give up, 
Denethor's glory for the sake of mankind as a larger whole, and I think he has yeah. a lot of trouble accepting that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he, yeah, he, um, yeah, that's that's cool. I, I don't, I don't remember from the, from the books at all um, if what what that scene looked like. But one one of the things that I do remember that was so impactful to his dementia was that he had a, he also had a palantir. Um, Mm. And um, so he was able, well, so he was able to see. Is exactly, that in the movie at all? No, it's, it's not really. Well, so he, he alludes to it. He says, I've seen more than you know. Um, Who's he say that to? I don't remember. Um, I'm try, I think, I feel like it was either Gandalf or maybe to Faramir. It's okay. in his throne room. Um, but um, I, th I think it's Gandalf when Gandalf is just chastising him. Um, but um, so he, he sees exactly what Sauron, who also has a Palantir, wants him to see. Mm -hmm. um, and so he, he kind of um, sees the force that Sauron is accumulating, or at least, again, what, what Sauron is leading him to believe that he has accumulated on the other side of, the, the, of Mordor's walls. And um, sees his what what he believes to be his coming death, uh, his coming defeat, and um, and that's part of what drives him mad, is knowing what's coming and being okay. being feeling un unable to to do anything about it, and that's also what leads him to be so harsh towards Faramir when he finds out that the ring was within his grasp and he didn't bring it to him. Um, because that was the one chance in his mind that they had to actually defeat Sauron. Um, to hide it in a deep, dark place, right. <laughs> only to be used in the hour of utmost need. Or immediately. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so here's another thing, then. I thought it was really cool, that scene specifically. Um, um, and I'm trying to get more into the uh, cinematographic... <laughs> talks, Mike, <laughs> just for you. Um, I thought it was really cool that... Eowyn and Mary had just finished joining in to this chant from the Rohirrim. The Aerolingus are saying, you know, for, for the end of the world, for death, mm -hmm. death, and, and this idea, kind of similarly to the way they were looking at the prospect of Helm's Deep is, you know, then we'll die. Then I will die as one of them. And so there's this repeated honor in death striving for an unattainable righteousness or goodness mm -hmm. and so they're fighting against these dark forces and it's better to fight them and meet them in battle and succumb to certain death than it is to give up in some other way or you know be corrupted and so mm -hmm. i found that really compelling to be um paired against Denethor's accepting of death in this cowardly selfish way he wasn't dying on the battle fighting against the evil he was dying simply to run from it or to give into it um yeah. and even taking people with him and so I thought that was yeah. a really cool yeah comparison because both both portrayals were people openly accepting death 
Um, and of course, Gandalf is going to say it's a path we all must take. But you kind of get the sense in this section that, yeah, it's a path we all take, but the means by which we get there has great effect on mm -hmm. on us and and any valuation of us. So I, I really yeah. thought that was that was another pairing because it reminded me yeah. um, of like Leonidas's wife when she <clears throat> when she gives the shield to her son. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She tells mm -hmm. him, you know, come back with it or upon it. And it's mm -hmm. this idea that victory is priority number one and death is two right above losing. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, win or die trying really. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. It, it's funny you bring up um, cinematography. I'll stay on that same thing. But uh, I did notice that a lot of the green screen effects in this movie are starting to look dated. Mm -hmm. Very much so. I, I'm, I'm watching closely some of the battles. I'm watching some of the scenes when they're, just riding on the, on the horse or, or, or whatnot. And yeah, I mean, I mean, to be fair, the movie's what from 2003. I think so. I mean, I mean, to be fair. Yeah. I mean, it's going to look somewhat dated, but um, hmm. in, in spots, it was fairly noticeable. What I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to penalize it or knock it for that because <laughs> for the times it was, it was fantastic. Sure. You know, I what's funny is I agree completely. I've always felt that way about particularly, and Al, you're going to have to give me a better name for the skeleton army. Who are these traitors? What do I call them? Um, I call them the Green Ghosts. I forget. You know, th there's a let me see. Um, but anyway, I, I thought that the effect surrounding these guys, mm -hmm. I've always thought was dated more quickly than the rest of the effects yeah those, um, th those didn't look so good yeah but this oh, the time dead? around mm -hmm. yeah of the dead huh. this time around though i must have had such a negative expectation that i was like oh that doesn't look too bad i was also watching on uh, my laptop this time around instead of my larger screen tv so maybe that played a little bit of a role but one of the things it's interesting because I like the change, but I also think it it pulled me out of the immersiveness of the CG is yeah. Smeagol's face. They make him so evil yep. looking, especially when he's turning Frodo against Sam. Mm, and it's yeah. really effective and it's really scary to look at him, but it also looks so different from the way that I had seen him, that it almost reminds me, oh yeah, this is a CG character. Um, mm -hmm. Because I think they painted on his maniacal looks a little bit too too uh, exaggerated. Well, I definitely think these were the the, the, um, the early effects, like with the, like we talked about with the Planet of the Apes, how they used it later with the, with the face things and everything they've done in Avatar and stuff. I think this is kind of the movie where it kind of started. And I think that's why mm -hmm. Gollum's facial reactions look so real is because i think that a lot of it came from the actual facial reactions of andy circus yeah mm -hmm. mm. so those men were called were simply called the men of the mountains um, the men of the mountains and during the second age I'm, I'm reading here they had they had sworn an oath to align themselves with a with a sealjor um but they also worshiped sauron and mm -hmm. so when the sealjor summoned them for aid 
they did not come. And so Isildur cursed them for not fulfilling their oath. And mm -hmm. that's what led to their, their state of existence that they were found in by Aragorn. Another um, instance of duty, duty bound. bound. Yeah. What yeah, what you say matters. What you swear to matters. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, here's an interesting, um, quite in kind of getting back to what you were talking about with death, Dan, but a little bit of a tangent. Um, I was reading some of the reviews about the return of the king, and one of the consistent critiques that I, I had noticed um, was they had talked about how in a post-Game of Thrones era um, that a movie like Return of the King, where the only char main character that we actually care about to die is an old man who's probably getting pretty close to it anyways. Um, they, some folks thought it was a, it was, um, a bit contrived or um, some even used the word childish um, to have all of the main characters survive their various battles and journeys. So what, what, are, you, what are both your thoughts on that? Um. You know, it's actually funny that you mentioned Game of Thrones because I was I was finding myself thinking about Game of Thrones a lot during this. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, there are a lot of similarities, not so much in the story, but, you know, the sets, the way the fights kind of play out, and, and some of the character development here and there. But, you know, by the time I got to the end, I was thinking, wow, this movie really doesn't kill off anybody. <laughs> I mean, even like Gandalf. Yeah, even even <laughs> Even... Um, even Gandalf's death is basically uh, kind of taken away. Sure. Fellowship. I mean, we're supposed to feel really upset about Gandalf's death, but then it just ends up happening that he survives anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and that actually, it's funny too, because that's my kind of my theory on the ending too. Um, I was reading about the ending of, of, of this film, and some people had a theory that at the end of the movie, when Bilbo and the elves and Gandalf were all getting on the boat, and you look out in the water and you see this big sunset. It almost looks like the gates of heaven. Mm. And some people kind of thought of it in a way of they were all kind of going to the next step of their life, whether it be death or, or, or heaven or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but there was a line from the book where, where Gandalf says something. I can't quote it exactly, but then Frodo kind of repeats it. They said it, it sounds very much like they are entering into the world of death. They are crossing over into the world of heaven. Mm -hmm. Almost like in a way Gandalf and Frodo and Bilbo and all these characters kind of die at the end because Frodo has this point of driving the fact that his purpose was fulfilled. Mm -hmm. The Shire is safe, mm -hmm. but I'm, but it's not for me. Basically sure. like the Shire and the peace is not for me. It's for all of you. I have someplace else where I, else where I can get peace. Hmm. Yeah, I, you know, this, this is where, yeah, you can go ahead, Dan. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, I, let's follow this. I'll come back to the deaths. I'm interested in this. I was just going to say, I, I don't recall as much lore around the Undying Lands, because I think a lot of it falls in the, the book, The Silmarillion, and mm -hmm. some of, of Tolkien's other books. And I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm really not read on the, any of those books, but... Um, but from what I do recall, the Undying Lands were supposed to kind of be paradise of sorts in Tolkien's yeah. world. Mm -hmm. And the only reason the elves 
um, leave the way they do is because they're immortal. And so that's, that's the way that unless they're slain, that they can also then transition on to um, paradise. Um, okay. But the, but I, if I remember correctly, everybody else gets there, you know, the, the, the essentially the, the, the same way that, um, yeah, <laughs> gets there by dying. <laughs> well, yeah. Tolkien, Tolkien so, uh, somebody said something in Tolkien wrote after, it takes place after Lord of the Rings, it was like a brief, brief, short little story he wrote or whatever, that there's a story that Legolas eventually travels to the Undying Land as well. So they said it kind of, in a way, dismissed the whole theory of heaven that basically why would he go there because he was you know i don't i don't know but um it's just a running theory across the internet yeah so one thing that is interesting to me i guess i guess we're kind of speculating at this point but if elves have to transition there because they're immortal it kind of rubs me the wrong way then why um why Elrond is so upset that that his daughter is is choosing mortal life, um, yeah, or or rather choosing immortality. I'm I'm unclear on whether or not he's sad because she'll live a super long time and then die, or if she just won't be able to go to the Undying Lands with them because of the life of the Eldar is leaving. Because she even says, "No ship can bear me hence," or however mm -hmm. she words it. Right. And so I'm wondering if if an elf choosing to not go to the undying lands is mm -hmm. is enough for them to never be able to get there and of course i start thinking of all my assumptions about christological parallels that i'm sure tolkien was fleshing out in his imagination as he creates these worlds but mm -hmm. um but yeah so so back to the game of thrones comparison i it is such a I almost said stark reminder, but uh, <laughs> I didn't want to make the pun. So it it was such a crazy moment when Ned Stark, season one. I'm about to to spoil. I don't I don't know <laughs> if you give those warnings, but uh, season one, Ned Stark gets beheaded. Mm -hmm. I had been so trained by media that characters of such importance don't die true that i was in shock i i thought okay first option dream sequence second option um <laughs> maybe maybe he comes back maybe there's some and and he stays dead and so <laughs> that was really effective for me um and i and i liked it as as a plot mechanic that basically said it's less about our characters and more about the story that we're trying to tell. Mm. Now, I think Game of Thrones, it's ironic that people would say Lord of the Rings was immature because at least they were consistent because by the end of Game of Thrones, no one was dying. Mm -hmm. um, there were characters who were like a hundred, a hundred uh, whites to one and they were coming out unscathed. And there were a lot of complaints about plot armor in that movie or in that mm -hmm. series. But yeah, so do I do I dislike it in Lord of the Rings? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I need 
a tragic death oh. all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's effective, and and I think you can really give a character that honorable end and memorialize them. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I need it. No, I don't. Th- I don't think I've seen it either. I I think that um. I, I, maybe the only issue that I would really have with it so much is that some of the characters are really put in a lot of these situations that you kind of roll your eyes like, really? Mm-hmm. You know, they're in this group of a bunch of people and nobody gets a sword in the back or gets their head sliced <laughs> off or even a ligament sliced off. I mean, let's see, a lot of movies are guilty of that. There's a lot of war sequences in movies where the heroes, you know, they, they don't get hit, they don't get cut, nothing, but yet everybody they know and all their soldiers are all getting hit Everyone yeah. else is a stormtrooper. Well, so <laughs> well yeah, or, or a red shirt from Star Trek. <laughs> part of me thinks it's 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 not an immaturity on Tolkien's part, but it's him recognizing that he's writing in the form of epic stories. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and in the Greek epics, you had plenty of open battlefields in which your prominent characters weren't killed. Um mm-hmm. And, and maybe even in a contrived fashion. And so I think maybe it's a modern thing to throw away your heroes a little bit more easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a good shock value there too, but that's not the end all of character development is cutting their life short. What, this is a lost spoiler to get into it, but um, one of the deaths that really upset me was John Locke's death in Lost. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, and they even teased it and then walked him back because he, I don't know if you, you guys remember, but he was, he was going to kill himself. He was going to hang mm-hmm. himself. Mm-hmm. And then Ben Linus talks him out of it mm-hmm. and then kills him and strangles him. Um, and so that was a tough death for me and that was pre-game of thrones and so maybe that warmed me up to the idea but what (laughs) that did was it it forced me to say okay lost is not about your characters it's about the story as a whole and it forced me to step back a little bit Mm -hmm. um so i don't know i just think they're different styles yeah. Game of Thrones is a little bit nihilistic for my for my liking, and I think there's mm-hmm. a a depressing lack of redemption there. And so, if that's the trade off for you know characters that don't live through battles, then maybe I don't want it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny yeah. too because in Lost they all die at the end anyway. <laughs> so you know. Gosh, I never finished that. Is that how it ends? I saw, I had oh, you never ep- saw the I ending? Had, I had three episodes left. I was going to watch it next week. Well, you want me to tell you why they die? I mean, you know what? This might become a lost podcast because there are a few television enterprises that I have spent more time and emotion on <laughs> than lost the television series. Oh, um, that, that last uh, season still... Uh, the last two seasons still baffled me, especially that season where they were stuck in the 70s. Mm. Oh, I loved it. Yeah, that was, that, yeah, that was interesting. Season, season five finale, the white out with the black text. I still oh. maintain that that could have been the end of the series as a whole. It and I would have been. accepted that. 
And so then in season six, I was like, okay, you're giving us another season. It better be for something. But Hmm. in my opinion, it was just a prolonging of them saying, yeah, we're not really going to answer any questions. That that was the biggest problem with the show. It just, it didn't, with a lot of lingering things. I mean, uh, Hmm. but I'll tell you though, that show though, had some of the best season finales on on television. Well, and I think that show broke ground on a lot of storytelling techniques that we love today yeah they're duplicated maybe lost doesn't do it with the pacing of modern shows but they were the ones who kind of showcased a lot of these new storytelling techniques i mean Mm -hmm. yeah just anyway i could talk about Lost. they started a new trend in tv i think game of thrones kind of took a little bit from lost in the way it structured story and how it did things and was willing to take risk with killing characters off and that's another thing with lord of the rings too i mean you know it it didn't need to kill characters off in order to be shocking or or epic mm-hmm. it was about the journey mm-hmm. to the journey there not about the characters and what their fates were it was more about the journey and how it was all going to come to come to head yeah so so there um this is a a complete tangent not even a tangent, a, a completely different thought, thought line, but I wanted to come back to what um, you had mentioned, Dan, earlier about power and Gandalf. Um, and there, there were three things that I really liked about um, the extended version that I think really kind of gave us some really helpful insight into um, the enemy or like Sauron, kind of Sauron, like the corporate Sauron. Um, one was the, um, the additional lore around the witch king and, Mm -hmm. um, kind of, kind of getting to your, your mention about Gandalf being powerful. One of the things that I, I, I loved about, um, the witch king's character was that moment where he breaks Gandalf's staff. Um, and kind of, I, I, like you were saying how Gandalf's power is, is clearly displayed in, um, that moment when he breaks um, Soromon's staff, I think yeah. that we, we really come to come to terms with the power that Sauron and his minions have when then his staff is broken by the Witch King. Yeah. Um, and I, I just, I think that they, they did a great job with the Witch King um, in the extended version. We even had that, um, there was a, a whole scene that was dedicated to talking about how he's Sauron's um, greatest weapon and most yeah. um, he's kind of like the, the, the deadliest of the nine. Yeah. And uh, I thought that was really, really cool. Um, I, I was thinking I would have loved much more information about the Witch King. Yeah. There wasn't nearly and, enough. And, yeah. Well, and even the prophecy too, because the prophecy mm-hmm. that Eowyn mm-hmm. fulfills is not, really in the movie it's just something that tolkien fans know and obviously it's in the movie in that it comes to fruition Mm -hmm. but i would have just i would have loved for them to to give a little bit more to the evil characters i mean saruman was a pretty a pretty good bad guy in that he was complex Mm -hmm. um but not many of the other evil characters were really all that complex sure and i'd have to imagine that it would be more so in the text maybe not um but then even if they did a modern day like the live action show that's coming 
I have to imagine that these villains are going to be much more complex and pitiable in a sense. I mean, mm -hmm. thinking of yeah. Thanos as probably the best example of a recent villain with whom half the internet actually thinks is right, you know? Um, yeah. There's yeah. this there's this deep development of villains where they take the ideology that fuels them is not necessarily the evil in all the cases, but really the means to an end. Mm. Um, or I guess mm. in, in Sauron's case, it might just be that he's, he's so greedy and corrupt for power, but I still think there, it, there'd be a cool venture into, exploring the human elements yeah um, yeah of the villains. nine yeah yeah it's, yeah well it's true yeah yeah i it's, yeah i agree it, it's true because for 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 a series that takes so so much time with character development for all of our heroes and all of and all the people that they associate with you're right dan they don't take the time to really flesh out the bad guys to make us kind of see their side of things you know make them kind of i don't know make, make us understand them better and thanos you're right yeah. is a perfect example of it thanos we yeah. got to understand everything about him so it was easy for us to kind of see his point of view and, and with this yeah. we can't see point of view at all well in yeah. a, and in a weird way you're able to see the power of the villain and respect it a little bit more because it's not just this nameless evil power. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, Spider-Man Homecoming was probably the best example of a villain in mm -hmm. which I thought, gosh, this guy's hardly a villain. He's just, you know, uh, he's just an outcome of his tech. circumstance. Yeah. <laughs> um, and well, I just, I really felt for him. I mean, think about his life and, and the choices he made along the way to preserve yeah. himself and his family. Now, obviously, there was corruption of some moral character there. Right. And mm -hmm. this kind of utilitarian sacrificing of what might be considered good. But, yeah, I just this idea that all the Urukai are kind of these spawned creatures without motive. Although, when the Aer Lingus flank them, you see this uh, lack of conviction and fear mm. on their faces that humanizes them in a in a certain way for me this time around where i yeah. thought to myself i wonder if there's any you know existential exploration of the urukai or if they're just mm -hmm. spawned and following orders their whole life and there's not much to it but. right right yeah well it seems like the orcs only motivation in this movie is just they want it to be an orc-dominated world. They want man out of existence. That seems to be the yeah. only motivation we get. And it's like, okay, that's just kind of run-of-the-mill, generic, by-the-numbers motivation. Yeah, there's just no... Which, yeah. I mean, Goth Gothmog mentions that. Hmm. Yeah. There's an interest... Wait, what does? Goth Gothmog. Yeah, he's that that uh, that one orc that is leading oh, them. The... Where his, his one eye is so swollen. During the battle, the he says that one, one big line. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> The, the age of men is past. The, the time, the time of the orc has come. What's interesting to me is, is that the effect of a race that doesn't, doesn't need, um, 
like has no scaffolding for procreation in a romantic structure you know like no, it's all barbaric. there's really no there's no negotiation socially or otherwise in their yeah. society because they're just pulled from these breeding sacks and yeah i don't think we ever saw a female orc either now that i think about it did yeah. we ever yeah, see a I female orc well, so we get in, in, I think it's two towers when, oh no, it's, it's, uh, it's fellowship when Saruman is explaining to, it's not the viewer, is it? He's, well, he's explaining it to some orc. It might be Grima. No, we hadn't met Grima yet. You're right. You're I right. think he Grima. might be explaining it to the Urukai. It's very much mm -hmm. a moment where they're just saying it for the sake of the viewer. Mm -hmm. um and he's like the crossbreed between elves like a, a, a mm -hmm. corrupted elvish bloodline or something like that yeah 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 they can uh, the urukai were bred to be able to well they're they're certainly a lot stronger but they also can fight in in the sun uh which mm -hmm. the orcs can't which is which is why the soran's cloud from mount doom needed to extend yeah 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 but yeah so so um so that that was one of like i said that was one of the things that that i really liked was the witch king and how it, it showed that sauron is is a powerful foe that he's yeah. he, he has a lot of power the second piece that i really liked was um the scene with aragorn and the plantier where he starts to kind of stage the distraction the diversion by taunting sauron mm -hmm. with El with elendil and then the ultimate um moment where soren's defeat was determined when he allowed himself to be distracted which i think mm -hmm. showed that he was not only powerful but that he was very prideful um because in all reality if you think about that battle there's no way he needed to be watching it um like they, they 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 definitely even even the good guys knew that this was kind of their last <laughs> yeah. um right exactly like like he he did not need to be overseeing that battle particularly when he recognized that there was something going on over at mount doom like um the, he he should he really like from a, a purely pragmatic standpoint should not have allowed himself to be distracted but mm -hmm. i think that that his, his the turning of his gaze onto aragorn um, I think for him to enjoy or have the pleasure of seeing Aragorn meet his demise just revealed how very prideful of a villain he is. Um, yeah. And um, so I thought that was that was interesting. The third, and I, I, I wanted to get y'all's thoughts on this, um, the mouth of Sauron, I really, really liked. Um, I love it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think because the, the third thing that that, really highlights so well to me is that Sauron is a villain that is founded on lies. Um, very much so. And that that's put that's very much interwoven into his power is that he he he's he's a lying villain. Um, yeah. And um, I just thought like the I, I felt I, I was really thankful that that the scriptwriters brought that into the story because I, I felt like it it's just a really crucial um, moment for the development of who Sauron is but yeah what you yeah. all is it seemed like you all liked him too <laughs> yeah. I I just love the mouth yeah. because I think he's an effective 
costume design Hmm. his visage alone makes me feel really (laughs) uncomfortable very much has this yeah he has this um he has this (laughs) movement that kind of reminds me of Guillermo del Toro's um Pan's Labyrinth which is one of my other favorite movies and the guy that has the eyes in his hands that's moving around in a really shifty Mm -hmm. way he just has this Mm -hmm quirkiness Fidgety. to yeah. him that makes me uncomfortable when he's like yeah, <laughs> yeah. and so uh yeah he just he he amuses me but makes me uncomfortable i think he's yeah. a really great ambassador too yeah i mean that's the kind of company that sauron <laughs> keeps <laughs> um dude probably had the most the most disgusting mouth i've ever seen in my life yeah. I like why you can see his tongue pressing through his teeth oh. at a couple points. Yeah. Well, and just like his lips, like does he have lips? Hurt? It's kind of like his <laughs> mouth well, is like they're like cracked. They're split all over the place. It's like haven't you ever had that split in your lip where you're like, yeah. oh boy, that really hurts. Yeah. Um. So it's fun. It's fun to hear you talk about Sauron too because. One of the things I found interesting this time around is Mm -hmm. where the heck does Sauron get his power from? Mm -hmm. And I thought, I don't really know anything about this guy. That's true. Except, you know, I'm I'm a product of the times. The zeitgeist of Lord of the Rings is everything fell into myth and shadow and, you know, Mm -hmm. a faceless name. And so I looked into it a little bit, and you could probably mm-hmm. speak to this more, but apparently he's a Mayan. Yep, he's a servant. Yep, he's a, yeah. he's a, a lesser lesser deity. Yeah. And so he was part of, part of the powers that constructed the universe that brought, brought life and creation. And the, it, it happened through sound. And he started to play with dissonant tones or something like that. His he, yeah, his master Morgulf did. Um, okay, and yeah. then he supplanted Morgulf, right? Yeah. Um, so I, talk about. I just want to know more about that. No, that's that's about as far as I know. So Mor- Morgulf, yeah. So at in the in Tolkien's creation story, um, there's one kind of chief deity named Eru, who um, is said to have sung. Um, creation into existence and the Valar are kind of the lesser deities that are said to have um, sung sung with him but there was one Valar named Morgoth who decided to introduce his own theme into the song and it was at it was in at dissonance with um, Eru's theme and um, so Eru, being the wise creator that he is, ends up making a third a third melody that actually takes Morgoth's theme and his original theme and makes it uh, and t- changes it into an even more beautiful song than it was originally. Um, so it kind of ends up um, using Morgoth's theme for good in the end. Yeah, um, what Morgoth meant for evil. Right, Eru, Eru turned for good. Yeah. So, yeah, and that, that's yeah. Kind of getting back to your point, Dan. I, I think there there are definite moments um, all throughout Tolkien's lore that that his his faith really um, comes through. So some some get I, I think um, approach Lewis's 
explicitness. <laughs> Gosh, um, but no one gets quite as explicit <laughs> as C.S. Lewis does. Yeah, he's about he's about as far as you can go with that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, but it's it's a really neat story, and and uh, but I I I don't remember too much more in, in regards to the exact relationship between Morgoth and Soren. I just know Soren was a Maiar and was a servant of Morgoth's. Um, was so kind of a, one thing I heard about Maiars is that they can't perish, and that even this defeat of Sauron doesn't actually destroy him but mm. perhaps he's so weak that he'll never take a corporeal form because he infused the ring with part of his life essence or whatever you want to call it uh, um yeah and the so, gandalf was a Maiar, by the way he was really? yeah he was not all of the five he was an he was a part of the order of five wizards and not all of the five were Maiar. I feel like it might have been that Sauron and Gandalf were. And Radagast um, was not. <laughs> no. <laughs> but um, yeah, there's there's a lot of cool lore out there. I see, and that's what I wish there was more of. And mm -hmm. I I don't know if it's that visual media has gotten more into understanding source materials and fan bases, or we've gotten better at fleshing out deeper storylines in shorter amounts of time. But I feel like if there's one overall criticism, it's that the lore exists behind the story. So it's very cool still, um, but it isn't brought to your attention as a viewer only. And that mm -hmm. it's just kind of yeah. a window into this world that's deep and rich that you just have to, which is why I'm going to start reading it. So. Mm. Yeah, a lot of the source material stuff, I think they've learned a lot from that recently, too, because look at, like, Harry Potter came out, started coming out around the same time Lord of the Rings did, and yeah. uh, Lord of the Rings, or Harry Potter suffered from a lot of the same problems. It it didn't necessarily, I mean, it did a decent job of, of transferring over stuff from the book to the movie, but again, it did a lot yeah. of its things where it pick and choose what it wanted to do, it left a lot of big things out, and, you know... I don't know why movies do that because it's the same problem with video game movies when the mm -hmm. source material is right in front of you and you have to feel the yeah. need to divert away or pick and choose and you're omitting a lot of important information. And even if you're not a fan of the stuff, mm -hmm. why are you admitting key story plot points just for the benefit of what you don't want to write them or you don't think it's going to be entertaining enough? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so interesting because I think Harry Potter taught me how to appreciate film adaptations for things other than their faithfulness to the original story. Mm -hmm. um, but again, I, you're, I think you're right in that there's a, an underlying character that we perceive in stories we love. Mm -hmm. And if that gets betrayed, I, I mean, Avatar The Last Airbender movie is a great example of Perfect that, example. where it's, it, you know, it's more than just the casting in that movie. It's it's the tone. It's everything. It's it's just they don't just get. So off. Yeah, they just don't get it. It seems, and so I don't think I would accuse Lord of the Rings of that or Harry Potter of that. I think they got no. it. Yeah, they got but yeah, it. Yeah, you're right. It's just sometimes, like Fenrir, I remember being such an iconic character for me, and then he barely got any screen time, and I was like, wait a second, how's this even gonna work? So. Yeah, I, I will be interested because I don't often 
read the books after I watch the material. A lot of times I'll try and seek out the books first. Um, one of my buddies does it the opposite way because he anticipates always enjoying the books more. And so he wants to interface with the film and then the text. Hmm. But That's I'll cool. be interested what it's like to read. Yeah, huh. Harry, Harry Potter was one of those things where I didn't really understand why people were so bothered by what they cut. Because, I mean, the movies... I don't think the movies had a problem with what they what they kept and what they cut it out. The movies were told in a very coherent way where everything just it, it flowed right. Nothing felt mm-hmm. like it was extremely omitted. I mean, I guess if you read the books and you dissected them, sure, you're going to know what was missing. And in some things you might have liked to have seen transition to the screen. But yeah. can, can anybody really name in Harry Potter in the movies what really suffered from something not being from mm-hmm. the book in the movie? I don't think that realistically you can really think of anything that's really hugely hurting it. I think what they did, they did very well. And that's what served Mm -hmm. them is um, they nailed the music and all the (laughs) things that the text couldn't do. Some people, I guess, don't like this. I became aware of this recently. I loved the switch into grittier darker both you know costuming lighting score everything got matured and got darker as the series went on Mm -hmm. and I kind of felt that growing up with the books I still remember when the political backdrop of the Ministry of Magic and Mm -hmm. you know the the pure blood movement kind of exploded and I and I just wow, there, there was just so much there behind everything. And that was mm-hmm. so remarkable. And I think the movies did a really good job of the jarring shift from the cadence of the school year into them on the run and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, the maturity yeah. was very well done. You could definitely, from, from Sorcerer's Stone, you know, to the very end of Deathly Hallows, you can, you can see not only the maturity of the characters yeah. throughout, but just the maturity of the story, how the story's told, the themes, the cinematography, everything. Yeah. Just that series is one of the ones that I really like how it matures with the ages of, of the actors and the characters very, very yeah. well. Well, and bringing it back to Lord of the Rings, I think I feel a similar thing at the end of Lord of the Rings is we get back to the Shire, but it's not the same Shire. And it's not that the Shire has changed so much as the experiences that the Mm -hmm. fellowship has had have just changed them forever. And there's something that's really sad about that, but it's Mm -hmm. also so true. Um, Mm -hmm. It's kind of like when you visit a place that you grew up and it's, you know, the size isn't the same and, things are different and you can you can relish in the memories that you had there but there's this the place is in and of itself a constant reminder that you're not there anymore in the way that you were when you remember it. and so it's this yeah. ebbing of time that happens and i think lord of the rings really really nails that feeling um yeah you know, Sam is probably the closest to getting back to his roots and building yeah. a family, but everyone else is kind of, you know, they feel out of just, place. Yeah. Yeah. They they're just moving forward and they're, mm-hmm. they can't help it. Yeah. Yeah. The Shire didn't, didn't feel as happy and giddy as it did in fellowship. It, it, it did feel 
really different. There was just something that was just, even like when they were in the bar waiting for their drinks, it just didn't seem like that cheery, happy-go-lucky, bright place that it did. It, 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 yeah. felt, it felt really different. Innocence to experience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They've seen a lot in the world, a lot of dark, so mm-hmm. it makes a big difference now. <laughs> so, uh, okay, so. Ten. Here's no, no, I wasn't going for yet. I wasn't, I wasn't going to go there yet. <laughs> um, now, this I wanted to ask this question because um, with with Aragon, you know, it, with with Arwen and, and uh, Arwen. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, Arwen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I felt for her, especially when he kind of told her off. But now, mm-hmm. if you were in Aragon's shoes, mm-hmm. which which woman would you choose and why? What would be that quality that would that, that that you would endure you to pick that one? Gave you a little bit of thinker, huh? Well, well so, so I just keep thinking yeah. of why why would he drink from Eowyn's cup? That clearly meant something to her, mm-hmm. and I just <laughs> didn't understand. <laughs> the the, the, gl- the gloppy soup. Well, just the whole thing, like, she gives him the thing, and he drinks it, and then she's all happy about it, and Theoden congratulates her, and I'm like, okay, I'm outside looking in, but there's definitely a cultural implication here that I don't understand. I don't know, kind of like if you unwittingly gave someone a promise ring, and you were like, here you go, and they're like, oh, I'm so happy about all this, and you're like, well, doesn't mean anything yeah, to me. Yeah, give me that back. Yeah, yeah. yeah and so I, I was, I'm still confused at that because I don't understand Aragorn's behavior, mm-hmm. if that means anything or if that's just a weird scene. I don't know if you have any book reference for yeah, that. Yeah, I now. do. I, I think that the, the hinting at romance between Aragorn and Eowyn in the movies is is contrived for the sake of the audience of the movies. Um, so mm-hmm. in, in the book, Arwen never wrestles with the um, real, te- real temptation to go to the Undying Lands and to leave Aragorn. Oh, really? Um, no, actually, and what's, what's That's interesting- That's like her entire arc I know, in the movies. I know, I know, I wow. know. And what's, what's interesting is that uh, actually, Elendil is not what gets sent to him um, in the books. Uh, that the sort of Elendil that, that Elrond shows up with in the movie, it's actually a banner that Arwen makes for him. Um, and um, she, just to remind him that she's still ultimately rooting for him, that she's there and, and is hopeful for him. Um, so I, I think that, um, yeah, I think it'd be hard for me to get, to, I, I think out of that context to imagine Arwen a different way. I, I, I really would have to go with Arwen um because i think that that's yeah i i just think that 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 the the commitment that's very obvious in their relationship throughout the books is really really strong Mm -hmm. i have to say though i think arwen is a rather weak character sure uh and and i think i'd go the same way because obviously there's a history off screen there and they're essentially betrothed i mean Mm-hmm. or married who even knows what what the situation is there but and and the same age versus Eowyn being 20 <laughs> yeah there you go that's only 60 years yeah it's like yeah. um he, likes but, the, he, he he goes for the uh you know 
ones that are a little younger than him. That's all. Uh, pretty Ricky says it's just a number, something like that. Yeah, um, just a number. Age, age, yeah, is, so age is what you feel. Ar- yeah, Arwen is is a passive character for me. I think she shines the the mm-hmm. brightest in Fellowship. Mm-hmm, I really right. loved her repartee with Aragorn. Um, mm-hmm. I like that she's stealthier than he is in some circumstances. I like that she's a better horse rider than he is. Mm-hmm. I like that she's able to conjure the magic of her people to both fend off the ring rates and save Frodo. Mm-hmm. But then we yeah. really yeah. don't see anything of her except for these weird dream visions um, <laughs> where she's like smooching and hugging on Aragorn. And so, yeah, I just, she's, she's a, a passive mm-hmm. character. She doesn't play as active a part as I would have liked right. because the whole Eldar thing, I think she makes a really profound sacrifice um, as far as I understand it. And I love mm-hmm. magic and mystical elements in fantasy. And I think, I don't know, I just feel like she kind of got nerfed. But maybe in the books, if she's just sending banners, she's kind of passive in that regard too. <laughs> um I don't mean to be. Here's some cloth. Mean. Yeah, here, go, go do this. Shoot. But um, but yeah, I, I really, li- I really like what they were able to do with Eowyn, having only been in two of the movies. Mm. I think she shows, um, I don't know, just a really cool, strong character who wants to help people. I think, I think there is a like a stubbornness that she grows i don't know i i just like eowyn she's more thought-provoking to me um yeah 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 i'm I'm kind of the same way i probably if it were me if i was Aragon, i I probably would have picked eowyn because i she she's a fighter much like he is you know, and like you said, you know, look at the way she rides a horse. Look at the way she's compelled to go into battle and fight for the cause and, and this and that. And you're right with Arwen, Dan, because the way the movie showcases her, she doesn't really do anything. Hmm. You know, she doesn't really do anything. I mean, we, we get she has a history with Aragon, and I, and I respect that. And I would have actually liked to have seen more of that history. Therefore, at the end, when she shows up and, and she's going to basically become the queen, I can kind of feel that. That was the one scene at the end that kind of bothered me because, mm. you know, when he sees her, we're supposed to feel like, oh my God, it's, it's, it's his love and he's got her back. But as the audience, I'm kind of like, eh, eh, I, I, I don't, I didn't really see any of your relationship. It's, it's, it's like if a TV show puts two characters together and they don't develop them and it's like, okay, so now I'm supposed to care. Yeah. Like honor <laughs> you know? moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 what it felt like, and for a movie that like, like like I said before, that's so character development and character moment heavy, that relationship is very underdeveloped. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Where it makes sense given the lore, but they just didn't get enough screen time. Yeah. Um. But. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, right. and again, Witch King elves i could have done with Mm -hmm. a lot more magic and i think i said this in the last podcast is one of the things i'd like to see is more explicit magic use get get into that like Mm -hmm. what is the council of five who's who's in the order what's the order's aim i think the political structures um and the 
the lore, the prophecies, magic use outside of the kingdom of humans, the kingdom of men, mm-hmm. there's a lot of room for development. And maybe, mm-hmm. maybe the live action show is going to have the time mm-hmm. uh, to dedicate to those other uh, kingdoms and storylines. I'm, I, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful that it's, it's rich with Tolkien lore. Me too. Yeah, I, I think that's the one thing we can benefit from with this TV show. A lot more depth to maybe certain things we didn't get enough of in, in these because there wasn't maybe enough time to do yeah. so. Um, all right. Well, since we're, we've reached Ten. the end. Because well, <laughs> we've reached the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, I will ask two questions. Uh, Favorite moment of the entire trilogy and worst moment of the entire trilogy. Hmm. You go first, though. Favorite moment of the entire trilogy was when Sam was um, looking at... <laughs> How did look, I know it doesn't involve Sam? <laughs> was, look, was looking into Frodo's eyes. And you oh, could see... As, as, Frodo, as, as Frodo what gotten on the ship to go to the Undying Land. And you could That's see... That's your favorite that, moment? And you could mm-hmm. see their friendship. <laughs> least favorite moment. wait a minute we go through wait, about least pause, favorite pause. least favorite is that moment. real is that least, a joke least favorite moment <laughs> wait a minute when, wait a minute this entire trilogy is nearly 10 hours long and that's your out. favorite moment hear, hear me out least favorite moment when frodo was looking into sam's eyes when he was about to go into the undying oh, lands <laughs> no i'm just kidding <laughs> I was going to say that that was, uh, that, that was going to take the cake right there. That was going to take the cake. Favorite moment <laughs> ever. Gosh, this is, that's a heavy question. You should have told me beforehand that you were going to ask this one. Uh, it's funny. What are your real moments, Al? Because I need more time. Yeah, um, I'm. I'm trying to think. Well, yeah, I, so you've thought about this, Mike. You lead us with this. Yeah. What are your favorite and least favorite? Um, that is tough. I mean, I have a few, but if I had to really pick out like the favorite moment, um, I probably would have to go with the scenes in the Fellowship in the Shire, just basically that whole beginning in the Shire because I like getting to know the hobbits and I like seeing their culture and how they live and how they're all friendly to each other and, and, and um, the houses they live in, the parties they have, the food they eat. Um, yeah, I would just think that probably the Shire. And I think that's the one thing that upset me that after that, we don't see it till the very end because yeah. it really, it's what, it's what got me to get involved in liking Lord of the Rings because the movie opens with this and it's so lighthearted. The music is so cheery and, and uh, it really starts us down this really dark, steep road that we go to that never brightens up until <laughs> really the very end. Hmm. Yeah. I'll circle back with my least favorite one. Um, I guess it's it's probably one of two scenes for me. One is when Sam picks up Frodo and says, I can carry you. 
Um, I just, I don't know what it is, but I, I've always loved that scene. And I always, a good moment. I always get teary eyed when he does it. Um, this, this, the second scene I, that's probably one of my favorites is when Gandalf, um, and the Rohirrim charge down and liberate, um, everybody in Helm's Deep. My least favorite, I know, I think of it every so often. I will never, ever like this line. It's when Frodo is in Shelob's lair and he touches the wall and he says, it's sticky. I absolutely, <laughs> I absolutely hate oh my that God. line. That will always That's be my so least funny. favorite. It's sticky. Of the entire trilogy. Wow. <laughs> so I think my favorite, uh, I, I'm not prepared. I think it's, it's, yeah, if I think about the, okay, I'm just going to go with one of two scenes. I'm going to narrow it down to two. And it's not because I like love them or anything. They're just the scenes that come to mind the most when I'm not watching the movies. And that is the old man fight between Sauron and Gandalf. That is pretty badass. That is pretty badass. And I, I always remember it as just kind of like squeaks and groans because the tile floor. But I love Gandalf's, you know, denial of Saruman when he says, you know, tell me, friend, when did Saruman the wise abandon reason for madness? Mm -hmm. So maybe that one, maybe that scene, or the scene when the orcs want to eat the halflings, um, and they're kind of like oh, in yeah. arguing amongst themselves. The guy that's like, what about their legs? <laughs> what about they don't need those. Yeah, and I just, I don't know, I just like, I think that's a quotable scene when he's like, meets back on the menu tonight, boy! And then fighting, yeah, it's very henchman-y, I like, I like the, uh, I like the quirky, dark way the orcs interact, so. Or any Gandalf line almost ever in the entire movie. It's true, it's true. Like when he says... Shadow facts, show me the meaning of haste. <laughs> show us the meaning of haste. I was thinking with how much you talked about duty bound that you were gonna say when Sam says, oh, I made a promise, Mr. Frodo. And I don't mean to. <laughs> so now that no. we're getting to that, let's no, get Mr. to our least favorite part in the trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> I got two I, now. I'm loaded. You now. know, I would I would have said when Sam walks out into the water and almost drowns. Oh, because I, you know i like i get it i like it but as far as movie making goes him walking out into the water them kicking in the slow motion and he slow <laughs> like that dreaded slow motion up and then a hand comes down and grabs him after who knows how long and pulls him into the boat sam is easily one and a half to two Frodo's. I don't know. It just seems like one of those. I get the point, but it's so yeah. over dramatized that it's almost like a parody of itself. Um, <laughs> In a way, yeah. I yeah, I, I don't I, disagree at all. That, so that's, that's actually that's, about right. That's definitely my least favorite part. Is 
I, I get what it's doing. I like what it's doing. And you're right, Al, it ties into my favorite theme, but I just, it didn't <laughs> hit the screen well for me. <laughs> <laughs> you are going alone and I'm coming with you. <laughs> I don't know. My least, I'm going to go with two. My two least favorite thing, number one, I really disliked those those scenes with uh, with uh, Mary and Pippin with the trees and two towers. I, oh, really? I, I wanted yeah. to fall asleep. I started dozing during those scenes. I wanted to skip over them. I was just kind of like they went on oh, way too long. Well, even the ants seemed like they were falling asleep. Yeah, well, I can see why. It, they, they talk and you want to fall asleep. Uh, that hurts and, my feelings. <laughs> and then uh, going back to what we said before, just the whole relationship between Aragon and Arwen, I just, it doesn't mm. work. It doesn't work. And I think it really kind of affects the end of Return of the King because I don't feel that relationship. I don't feel that connection. And it, I think it kind of hurts that end of it. But, mm. you know, whatever. Yeah. To um, each their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, two more questions. Uh, question. Now, I'm almost there. I'm almost there. Um, <laughs> favorite and least character of the, tr- of the trilogy? Favorite Gandalf. and least favorite? Gandalf is my favorite. Mm-hmm. Well, I know Gandalf's your favorite. That, that's, you know. I have two. Let's go ahead, Alistair. I, I'll let you go first. Well, Sean Aston is definitely my favorite. Uh, so no, no. That's an actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you got to say character, not Sam. Act- Sam, Samwise Gamgee. Samwise the um, Brave. Least favorite? Let me. I'll, let me think about it. You can go ahead. You're gonna say Frodo. <laughs> don't <laughs> no, you? It's not, it's don't not you condemn Elijah Wood? It's, it's not Elijah. I, I think my least favorite. Well, I don't know, Mike. You do your favorite. I gotta think. Um, you know, I have two, but a third one's kind of rising up. So Gandalf definitely is one. Um, Sam and uh, I'm about to go with Pippin that Return of the King Pippin really uh, became one of my favorite characters nice yeah mm-hmm. I think my least favorite partially and this isn't his I'm sure not his fault this was a, like a cinematography decision mm-hmm. my least favorite is the ring wraith that when he gets the torch thrown into his face and <laughs> on Amon Hen flails around and literally, yeah. his, literally his body does like a 180 as he's flailing. That's my, yeah. least, that's my least favorite. Well, you, you, <laughs> so swung, my you swung, least... swung for the fence there. Yeah, that's very specific. Yeah. <laughs> my, my least favorite is not because it's a bad character. It's actually because it's such a well-done character and it's Denethor. Mm, John I Noble just, is fantastic. I, I hate his guts. He's yeah. such a jerk. He's an and asshole. Yeah, I just... You wish Boromir so, had died, or had lived, and I had died instead. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I wish that. <laughs> yeah, and and it's it's effective. I hate him. What a father. <laughs> what a father. Yeah, I really dislike... And the way eating was such a good choice of just him being a sloppy little pig while he demands <laughs> that Pippin sings for him. I like he, that. Hey, that Hobbit. is so effective for me. Yeah. Hey, Hobbit, do you sing? Sing for me. Yeah. 
really well yeah. done. And so I, yeah. I really disliked him. Mm. Yeah, I, I can agree with that. He's mm. scum. Uh, my least, uh, you know, I'm gonna go back again. Arwen's my least favorite character. Hmm. Oh, I can't. I can't. There's I, I, too much Liv Tyler. potential there. I like Liv Tyler as an actress, but I think she's wasted in this movie. What else has she been in? I've never seen her in anything else. So she was she was Bruce Banner's love interest in mm. um, really? in The Incredible Hulk. Why haven't we Norton seen her one. since then, by the way? Well, because they kind of severed all but severed with that movie's canon. I mean, yeah, except for General Ross. Can- yeah, and so I think I think they wanted to play up the Hulk and Scarlet angle, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. I think they were worried about bringing in some of the cast and not all of them. I think they'd re- probably just rather forget that Hulk was ever. Well, so the other probably. aspect of it too, I think, is a rights issue because Hulk, be. they can't. They can't have a Hulk movie. They had to have Hulk as a, as a third-party character, I think, mm-hmm. was the rule for how they could develop movies with him. I think Universal still owns the rights. Yeah, and I don't remember, or I don't know, rather, if that affects how they, um, how they could license the different characters from there. Maybe they just figured it wasn't worth the paycheck that they'd have to dish out for, um, I don't know why I'm blanking on her name. Well, they did dish out a hell of a hell of a payday to Sony in order to share those rights with Sony with Spider-Man because yeah. that that's a whole whole mess in its own and that almost fell apart. Just what was it last year? Saying yeah, Sony right. was going to take them back. That. that was a mess. Yeah. So, uh, what else is she in? I think a, a lot of the movies I've seen her in, she's too whispery and weak. Mm-hmm. Um, like. I mean, Incredible Hulk is a great example where I just don't think she's a strong character. Mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings is one of my more favorite showings of her. She's an Armageddon. Um, mm-hmm. She does really, really well in the HBO series, The Leftovers. Oh. Um, hmm. I highly recommend that show. And I also think she does really well in it. Um, hmm. watch. But yeah. Leftovers. Hmm. Interesting. All right. So the last question is nine. Okay. Favorite film of the trilogy and what your rating is of return of the King. I got to be honest, return of the King almost supplanted fellowship. Mm. Uh, Maybe it's because I didn't sit down and watch it in one sitting this time around. So I didn't get fatigued, but Mm-hmm. it just was so good I think I gave Fellowship an 11 and Two Towers a 10 so I guess I'll give Return of the King 10.7 10. 10.8 Ooh, really uh, close I, and so I will say this I think Return of the King is better than Two Towers in almost every way yeah um, I really, I really like the revealing of reincarnated Gandalf, and I like the way he interacts with Theoden, mm-hmm. um, and I like Theoden better in Two Towers. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of just, 
I mean, he has he has this rebellious streak in Two Towers, and then in Return of the King, he's kind of just like, yeah, whatever you say, Aragorn. And Aragorn's like, we got to leave soon. We don't have much time. And he like, mm-hmm. yep. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I I I like it. So Fellowship number one, Return of the King number two, but it's very close. And then Two Towers number three. Mm-hmm. Okay, Al. Yeah, I think my favorite. I'm a sucker for some of the battle sequences in Return of the King um, that I really enjoy. So probably. Yeah, probably Return of the King as my favorite, and I'll I will give it a ten. Oh, you gave him all tens, right? Yeah, yeah. That, that, <laughs> at least we got a favorite out of him because I, so Al's the number favorite, scale won't do it. Al's favorite movie of the trilogy is the books. <laughs> yes. That's my. That favorite. makes sense. Yes. Or no, no, Al. It's okay. Your favorite's the Hobbit. The Hobbit trilogy. It's okay. My favorite is the cartoon version of The Hobbit. Ooh, that wow. is a good one, but they took out the Beastmaster guy. <laughs> well, there's more than one cartoon version, but the one we watched in Mr. Meyer's class, I was mm. really upset that they took out the giant. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I don't know why I wanted him to be in it huh. so bad. but <laughs> um, Let's see, my favorite, uh, yeah, I gonna have to go to return of the king um for return of the king being the longest i felt like it had the best pacing it it seemed like it moved yeah. it seemed like it moved pretty quickly it didn't feel like it's runtime to me um i just felt like there was a lot going on and the movie just kept pushing things at you there really wasn't many slow moments um mm. I mean, it's very close to fellowship for me uh i mean cause like those moments in the shire and fellowship are so dear mm. to me so i mean it, it, those two are very close together. Um, two Towers is de- easily the weakest for me. That was easy to separate because just the first half of Two Towers to me is just kind of, well, it's just, I felt it was slow. Um, I kind of wanted to doze out to the beginning of Two Towers. Maybe it's because of those, you know, Pippin and tree scenes and all that stuff. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, I'd say Return of the King, Fellowship really close behind it, and then Two Towers at number three. Mm. Mm. it's funny it's funny you mentioned you like the pacing mike because i think that was one of the um i i I think the way that they interwove the storyline of of what was going on in the west and Mm -hmm. then frodo and sam was was pretty different from the books in the books the they kind of have those two um lines as one consistent story like you see a lot of frodo and sam in the two towers and Mm -hmm. very and very little of the west and then the return of the king was supposed to kind of catch you up to speed on everything that had happened for mm-hmm. everyone else. But um, for the sake of the pacing, um, they kind of ended up handling that differently in the the, the film trilogy. Um, they kind of I like you know, I like that choice. Um, mm-hmm. One of one of my friends was talking about Game of Thrones and making the distinction between chronological storyline telling. Mm. and thematic storyline telling especially Mm. with something like an episodic story where are you seeing what's happening to the characters because the themes are linked or are Mm. you seeing it because of when it's happening and Uh, i i mm -hmm. think they did a pretty good job in lord of the rings of kind of making parallels between both Mm. um that of course it was chronological but i think they paired the scenes 
nicely and cut from and yeah. to them in ways that made thematic sense too overall yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah definitely yeah well that concludes the retrospective on lord of the rings it's been a lot of fun guys this is yeah i, agree. I, was, long, I was long overdue we, to do that we had 50 bonus minutes in this podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah we do uh check out the extended versions today Bye. <laughs> yeah seriously um, but coming up, we all discussed uh, the Star Wars saga. Mm, yes. Um, we decided. We have, we, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say we have a, another guest that may be joining us. Yes. To help Mikey defend the prequel trilogy, a guest by the name of Jeremy Larson, who I hope is listening. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, you th you think Jeremy will, will join? Oh, he's uh, he's already committed. Oh yeah. Oh nice. He 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 and I are going to have fun with that. We're gonna have well, fun. Well, I better recruit some people to uh, whoa <laughs> to fight against seventeen this. person podcast. I can fend off what? some, but not everybody. <laughs> I don't think you'll find as big an enemy in the prequels as you think in me, Al. Ooh, Al, you <laughs> might be I, in trouble. <laughs> well, so what's funny is I bought the prequel trilogy, and I think I've watched it three times this year for some hmm. reason because I, I've been trying to get my sister into Star Wars and so I did um, I think I was trying to convince her into the Machete Order which is 4-5 well Machete Order with Phantom which is 4-5-1-2-3-6 and then push it through hmm. um, but she was like let's just do release order and I was like okay that's fine but so I watched him with her, I watched him with Mariah, and then I was in this mode where I was like, I want to see them all in order. And so I watched them on my own. And it's one of those things where the story behind it is better than the execution. And so I like hmm. the story, but not necessarily how it's done. But yeah, I'm excited yeah. for that. I'll be excited for that podcast. It's going to be yeah. fun because we're going to we're going to do kind of a special structure with that. You know, we're going to do what uh, three episodes and then each episode we'll just cover the the prequel original and sequel trilogy so we'll mm -hmm. get to break down the trilogies as their own thing and then i think by the time we get to the end of of the uh the sequel trilogy one we'll be able to kind of to dissect mm -hmm. the whole saga as a whole and how they all kind of come together and if they tell the story easily yeah. or cool. whatever so I'm, I'm looking forward to that because i got a lot of star wars knowledge so yeah I'm gonna nitpick the crap out of that trilogy. Oh, oh, it's on! Let's go! Let's go! Let's go! You're you're not gonna get me to say much negative about about especially about the prequels. I mean, I'll be fair on some things, but mm, yeah, uh, uh, I'll bite my tongue. Uh, uh, I can't. I can't. I just I just can't. <laughs> cool. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, that's gonna be fun. Yeah cool all right guys well thanks for joining me on the lord of the rings and uh look forward to uh seeing you guys on the uh, star wars ones sounds cool. good thanks all good right. mike thank you guys have a good night everybody there is still hope i wish the ring had never come to me i wish none of this had happened so do all who live to see such times but that is not for them to decide all you have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to you. Season, mountains fall.
even the smallest person can change the course of the future.